Well, good morning, Canvas Community Church. So excited to be here. If you are a middle or high school student, you can be dismissed to the youth room to hang out with Jarrett and the team. Um, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And it is only by the grace of God that we are here this morning. Um, There have been many dark days for most of us in this room um, when it comes to our church experience. And there were probably days or weeks or even months where we weren't sure what God was doing um, and didn't know what was to come. But thanks to the Spirit of God moving in some pretty incredible ways throughout individuals in both congregations, throughout an incredible amount of humility, of a willingness to lay down positions of power, a willingness to lay down preferences, we have gotten here today, merging two congregations to become one for the sole purpose of us being a kingdom outpost in our city. We want to be here present and active in the city together, and God has done so many incredible things this morning that we are so excited about. I could spend the rest of this sermon both giving thanks and glory to God for making this happen and going down a list of individuals that made it possible. Uh, I was talking to Kent the other week, and he said, last week, he said, it was 365 days ago this week that I met Matt for the first time. So, remember this. If you're ever voting on whether or not your church should bring on an interim pastor who used to be a college professor, he might take you for a ride that you weren't expecting. Um, but we are so thankful to Matt. We miss him and his family. And again, I could, I could go through a list of everybody that made this happen, but, but today is our focus should be on Christ. And so we are launching a, a series that we're entitling My Part Matters, where we're going to spend the next seven weeks or so um, talking about how we as individuals can take the commands of Scripture seriously, and ultimately that if we, each one of us, take the commands of Scripture seriously, we prioritize unity, we prioritize brotherly and sisterly affection, that, that this merger can be successful and we could see God do some incredible things. But before we jump into a series called My Part Matters, I have to preface it, and we'll work this through the entire series, but the entire series is predicated upon one really important anchoring truth, and that is that your part only matters if it's submitted to his part. Our individual obedience only matters if we are following after what God is doing. It reminds me of the psalmist who says, if the Lord doesn't build the house, then the builders build in vain. Reminds me of Jesus talking to his followers when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to obedience. But our obedience only matters if it's submitted to his will. We can be the most organized, efficient, excellent organization with the clearest vision on earth. And if we aren't following God, we are wasting our time. So, we're going to talk about our part. We're going to talk about what God's calling us to as individual believers to be obedient. But let's remember that all of that is submitted to what He is doing in this place, what He is doing in this city. Let me pray, and then we'll hop into a text of Scripture. Father, we are so thankful that you brought us here to this place this morning. There were dark days and weeks and months where I had no clue what you were doing. I was confused. 
and lost. And like you always have in my life, you've proved your faithfulness again and again. There's been evidence of your faithfulness all over my life, all over our life, all over the lives of our churches and congregations, and you were doing a new thing. And we're so thankful for that thing. Even some of us in this room that, that didn't want this, wouldn't have chosen this. May we have confidence that you're in it and we lay down our preferences for the sake of what you're doing in our midst. So God, just be present from, from this day forward. May your Holy Spirit lead, guide, and direct each of us to a common goal with common unity for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles uh, and you want to follow along with me with a paperback or on the screen or on your phone, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're going to get to Acts chapter 2 in just a few moments. But I am, believe it or not, uh, young enough to remember with some clarity my engagement process. Um, I remember some details around it. I was a young kid leaving a conservative Bible college, and I had this deep desire to be a godly husband, and this deep desire to have a godly marriage and to, to, to enter into marriage with this foundation of building a godly family. And I distinctly remember this process uh, going into marriage where I was like imagining, dreaming about what my marriage would be like, dreaming about how I could be a godly husband and, and how my wife and I, we could be a godly couple and how we might build our lives on the foundation of a godly family. And I was reading every single marriage book and listening to every single marriage sermon that I could get my hands on. And I distinctly remember in this process of imagining what my marriage could look like, making a che checklist of behaviors, carbon copying the behaviors that these other pastors and authors were telling me that I should do. I remember making this long list of things that I was going to do every day. They were 40-year-old or Pastors who had been pastors for 40 years, married for 40 years, saying, I never missed a day praying for my wife. I put sticky notes, uh, handwritten sticky notes, love notes on the mirror every single day. All of these things that were like, I was going to do these things. I remember this one pastor said that him and his wife on their honeymoon sat down and created a mission statement for their family for the rest of their life. And I was like, this is the advice that I was putting into practice. Like, I'm going to do these things. Um, and about six months into my marriage, uh, I did a little self-evaluating and realized that I'd pretty much missed every single checkbox on the list at some point or time. And it wasn't that I had totally, it wasn't that I was totally unsuccessful at being a godly husband, but it was, I was focusing on the wrong things. I was trying to copy behaviors of other people rather than just be being driven by the core attitudes that they were expounding in those behaviors. See, I was, so I was so focused on the specific tasks that other husbands were doing um, that I missed the overarching attitude that should drive me to be a godly husband. And I share this story with you this morning because I believe we're at a similar place as a church where we can begin to imagine a church that God uses in some incredible ways in this city that God uses in each of your families to draw us closer to him and to send us out to have an impact to share the hope and healing message of Jesus to our community. But what we, what we might do is we might get lost in the tasks. We might get lost in the specifics so much so that we miss the core attitudes of what a healthy and effective church looks like. 
And so this morning, what I want to do, rather than get lost in some tasks or behaviors that might set us up for failures, I just want to look at four core overarching attitudes of a healthy and effective church. And, and at the end, at the end of this message, our, my goal is that we would imagine a church built on these four core principles, these four core attitudes that we're going to draw out of Acts chapter 2. Does that sound, sound like a good plan? All right. I usually ask that question, and I usually don't care what you say, because it's already, it's already the plan. So maybe one day I'll ask, you'll say no, and I'll change the plan. But for now, let's go. All right. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41, says this, Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, and they met in their homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to give a couple points of context before we get into our four core attitudes of a kind of healthy and effective church. The first point of context that I want to share is I included, you'll notice I included the verse before the paragraph break. If you've got headings in your Bible, you might notice that I included the verse before the, the, the heading. And that's because I think it, it helps us to feel the, some of the same things that the new believers were feeling. See, up until, verse, up until verse 41, when Peter kind of concludes his first sermon to this large group of people, the, the, the New Testament church was made up of about 120 people, 120 people of shared experience, shared culture. They, they kind of knew each other. They, they understood one another. And overnight, in an instant, 3,000 people were added to their fellowship, new faces, new cultures, new ideas, new perspectives. And you can imagine how that might feel to a group of people that were comfortable where they were, that were comfortable with the group that they were in. And now all of a sudden there's people that they might be skeptical of, might be confused about, might not understand their cultural background and upbringing. Does anybody feel similar? (laughs) The numbers are a little bit different, right? Numbers are a little bit different, but both of us, we, we were in a group of people that we were comfortable with that we felt good about, that we had done life with and shared experiences with. We had common language and a common understanding. And now we're thrown together in this place under this single roof, and God's called us to be a family together. But if we're honest, we might be skeptical of one another. We might not fully understand some of the language that we use or some of the culture that exists. And yet it's in that context that through the Holy Spirit, God was able to craft this incredibly unified church. It's a point of context that I think is helpful. There's two more points of context that I want to point out before we hop into our four core attributes. Um, The the first point of context is that this paragraph here sounded pretty incredible, didn't it? It sounded like something that you'd want to be a part of. I could pretty much just read this text and walk off stage and you could say, like, that sounds awesome. I'd love to be a part of a church that's like that. Um, So the first point of context is 
that this passage is a summary statement of the church at its best. Right? Like, you read the rest of the book of Acts, and it's filled with the church failing, messing up, being mean to each other, um, lying to the Holy Spirit. Like, there's all kinds of stories of the church failing. But this is, this is a paragraph. This is a summary statement of the church at its best. This is what, when you step back over time and see the Holy Spirit working through a church, this was Luke's summary statement. There's actually two more paragraphs very similar throughout Acts, where Luke is saying, man, when, when we were doing it, when we were doing the thing, when we were obedient, when we were faithful, this is what it looked like. And then throughout the rest of the book, he adds in all of the times they didn't do it. They got focused on their, themselves, their own preferences, their fears, their worries, their doubts, all of that. And so let's remember that this is the church at its best. We're going to fail. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to make each other mad. We're going to probably gossip behind each other's backs at times. We're going to mess up. And that doesn't mean that we aren't a successful and healthy church. That just means we're human. The church is full of people getting in the way of God's plan. But imagine a church. Imagine a church that in the midst of their failure and brokenness is submitted to the Spirit. May we step back a year from now and have a similar summary statement being true of us. So it's the church at its best. And secondly, it is, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Luke is describing what the church in the first century was doing. He's not saying this is what the church throughout the rest of history should do specifically. And so rather than getting lost in the behaviors of the early church, we're going to look at the core attitudes that they built their foundation on. Does that make sense? All right, so core attitude number one, the early church in a healthy, I believe a healthy and vibrant church will be built on the foundation of being committed to core doctrine. A healthy and vibrant church. And I realized after I wrote this message that there's probably a sermon for each one of these points. So... I'm just going to do my best to give you the, the Cliff Notes summarized version. If I miss something, I'm sorry, but I wrote four sermons and put it into one. So here we are. The early church and a healthy and vibrant church will be committed to core doctrine. It says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. See, there was no Bible at this point. They had the Old Testament in the temple. Um, they had it kind of memorized and, and they, they, they understood the Old Testament, but they didn't have a phone with a Bible app. They didn't have the printing press. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are people that had eyewitness accounts with Jesus. And so what are they doing? They're clarifying the Old Testament. See, much of the nation of Israel had, had gotten the message of the Old Testament distorted. They'd gotten lost in the weeds, and they missed the fact that it was all pointing to Jesus. And Jesus was standing right in front of them, and they were quoting to him the Old Testament about why he couldn't be the Messiah. And so the apostles, they're clarifying this for the early church. They're saying, no, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Don't get lost in the weeds. Don't get so focused on circumcision that you don't let the Gentiles come and partake in the thing that Jesus is doing. Don't get so lost in the weeds that you miss that it's all about Jesus. And so the apostles, they're teaching how the Old Testament all points to the central focus, which is the Messiah, Jesus. And not only that, but they were there when Jesus was teaching. And so they're expounding on the teachings of Jesus. They're expounding on the Sermon on the Mount. They are making the, the central focus of their doctrine Jesus. So they were devoting themselves to this really simplified core doctrine centered around Jesus. 
Paul later would write this to the First Corinthians in First Corinthians 15 about this core doctrine, this thing that they stayed focused on. He said, I pass on to you what was most important. This is their core doctrine. Paul says, this is what was passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins just as the Scriptures, just as the Old Testament said. And He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. They devoted themselves to this core doctrine, that Jesus was at the center of everything. I think if we're going to be a healthy, vibrant expression of the church in this place, we've got to get this right. We've got to be committed and focused on core doctrine that puts Jesus at the center. This doesn't mean that secondary theology isn't important. It does mean that we prioritize relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ above and beyond secondary doctrine. This is one of my favorite things that I've learned about the brethren as I've kind of dived into studying the history of the brethren. Is This is a very brethren value. Their doctrine, their core doctrine, has Jesus at the center. And it's not that they don't have positions on secondary theology, but it's that they prioritize. It's in the name, brethren. We, we're committed to coming together to, to prioritizing relationship in the midst of secondary theology. I'm going to start stepping on some toes, but don't worry, I'm a Equal opportunity offender. I'll step on everybody's toes, including my own, before the day is over. Some of you in this room, you've had continual fallout in your church experience. And it's because you've elevated non-essential doctrine to the level of essential doctrine. You've become religious and judgmental about secondary things. And people don't want to be around you. It's true. People don't want to be around you. And here's the reality. You're probably wrong anyway. I'm probably wrong anyway. All of us one day are going to stand, stand before God and have secondary theology corrected. And if you think you won't, then you're missing the point. So, we've got to keep core doctrine focused on Jesus. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Others of you, you've had bad experiences in the church community because you're unwilling to even agree to core doctrine. Because it seems harsh or unloving. And the reality is we don't get to redefine terms to fit the things that makes most sense to us. We can't deny core doctrine because we don't like the way that it sounds. So, may we be a people that prioritize relationships with one another centered around core doctrine that is Jesus at the center. Jesus says that the world is going to hate us because it hated him first. We can't afford to hate one another. We can't afford to argue with one another. We can't afford to hate one another when the world is going to hate us. Imagine a church that gets this right. Imagine a church that's unapologetically convinced of the gospel. A church that cares more about obeying Jesus' commands than fighting amongst ourselves. A church that's burdened for the loss far surpasses its burden for being right. I believe that a church that is built on the foundations of individuals. Remember, this is my part matters. We, we're not going to be a church that's committed to core doctrine if you don't get this right as individuals. If we are individuals committed to Jesus at the center of our doctrine, willing to prioritize our relationships with brothers and sisters over our secondary theological preferences, imagine a church that gets this right. Second, overarching core value I see in this text is the church that's dedicated to prayer. It says... 
that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing of meals and to prayer. This is one of the core attitudes that every Christian knows should exist in their life. Right? Like, this is a Sunday school answer. We all know that prayer is important. But if we're honest, it's often one of the most difficult things for us to get right. Especially in America. Have you guys noticed? I don't know if you've noticed this or not. America is driven by productivity. You guys ever feel that when you have conversations with your bosses at work? Like, we're driven by productivity. And if we're honest with ourselves, prayer doesn't always feel like the most productive thing. However... I truly believe that out of these four attitudes that we're going to look at this morning, prayer is the fuel for the other three. If we don't, if we're not devoted to prayer, we have an epic, powerful car sitting in the driveway with no gasoline in the engine. Imagine you having the dream car of your life sitting in your driveway, but no fuel to take it off the driveway. That is a church that has all of the other things going right, but is unwilling to devote themselves to prayer. This isn't, this isn't just individual prayer life. This isn't just you and your time with God. Some translations actually um, translate this as the prayers. Like there's this corporate thing that they are doing together as a church. They are coming together to pray with one another, to pray for their community. We should be dedicated to prayer in our individual lives and also as a church. This merger is going to be as fruitful as we all are hoping and believing that it will be. It has to be built on the foundation of the prayers. Our prayers. We've got to take this seriously. We've got to set aside time to be intentional with this. So I want to get really practical on this point. Um, and, And... because I was writing the sermon, I picked some arbitrary times that I hope will be beneficial to you. But I'm going to put some times on the screen that I would just love to encourage you to set an alarm on your phone. Um, or you'll see in the bulletin, we put uh, kind of a, a promo for our app, which will get... Uh, remember Kent's reminder, patience, patience, patience. Our app right now is still named Canvas Church. We will rename it. It's a process. Um, but if you download our app, you can subscribe to a notification list where I will, I will send you a notification every time throughout the week. And this is just an encouragement. Again, let's not get lost in the behaviors. If you can't make these times work, then set aside a different time. But I think it, there's something special about knowing when you go to pray that other people from your church are also praying at the same time for the same things. And I picked strategic times throughout the week so that we're kind of building this into the fabric of our schedule. And and listen, this can be anything as easy as a shotgun prayer from behind the wheel on your way to work. Or maybe at lunchtime, you've got time to intentionally fast for an hour at lunch and pray. Whatever it looks like for you, let's be a people that are devoted to prayer, both in our individual lives and corporately as a church. Another hope that I have, and I've heard that Grace has done this in the past, Um, is that we would have events where we would come here, some of us meet in the parking lot and walk around the neighborhood and begin to pray for the people in our community, the people in our city. May we be a church who is built on the foundation of being committed to core doctrine and being devoted to prayer. The third core attitude is, may we be a church that's built on the foundation of being submitted to the Holy Spirit says, a deep sense of awe came over all of them, 
And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. As I was preparing this message, I have to be honest with you, this is the one core attitude that I struggled with explaining the most. Um, because the last thing that I wanted to do was give a Christianese cliche answer about being submitted to the Holy Spirit. And often that's what we do when we talk about the Holy Spirit in church, because it can be this mysterious, supernatural thing. And so I wanted to figure out, like, how do I explain this? What does it look like for us to be a church that builds our expression of the church on individuals submitted to the Holy Spirit? And depending on what theological background you come from, this could mean two very different things. And so, since I'm, you know, super humble and an excellent preacher, just kidding, I'm just kidding, that's a joke. Um, I asked different people in our community, and I spent a lot of time really wrestling with this. I came up with two things. This is the good preacher joke. They're, they're two C's, because, you know, every preacher has to use the same first letter. So, two elements of what it means to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. The first is curious, and the second is common. First, curious. There is an undeniably supernatural element to submitting to the Holy Spirit. The text says, literally, there was an awe, a deep sense of awe that comes over them. This isn't something that you can explain away in terms. There was a, a sense of awe that the entire church was feeling as they were coming together, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. There is an undeniably supernatural element of individuals being submitted to the Holy Spirit. I love that song we sang, Make Room. That's the curious aspect of being submitted to the Spirit. May we come to God and say, God, I'm, I'm just making room for you to do whatever you want to do. I don't know what that looks like always, but may you do some miraculous things. Jesus tells his followers that it's better that he leaves so that the Holy Spirit can come. Have you ever read that passage in John and just stopped and thought, how is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus says, it's better that I get out of here so that the Holy Spirit can come? Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he will fill individual believers who will be spread throughout the entire world in different languages and cultures and backgrounds, and they will be my witness to the ends of the earth. There's something incredibly supernatural about us being willing to let the Holy Spirit lead us. Jesus says another in, insane thing when he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, you will do even greater things than me. There's a supernatural element to this. And so the reality is, I'm going to step on my conservative brothers and sisters' toes because it's me. This is where I come from. Some of us, we believe in a resurrected Savior, but not in his present resurrecting power. If you found Jesus in a more conservative, intellectually driven church, I think you need to consider, possibly, stepping out of your comfort zone and being open, making room for the Holy Spirit to do something curious in your life. Scripture is full of examples of this. When I try and illustrate this to people that are wrestling with the concept, I talk about a parent who has four presents wrapped under the tree and the, the kids open the first three presents and they're enamored with it. They love it. They're so excited about these gifts that their, their parent has given them and they get lost in playing with the three gifts and they kind of leave the other one underneath the tree. I think this those of us that are that are kind of concerned with what might happen if we open that Holy Spirit box, we just get consumed with playing with the three 
And we miss out on something that God wants to do in our life. Let's be a church full of people who are open to the Holy Spirit doing some supernatural things in our life. Don't worry. Told you I'm an equal opportunity offender. Uh, I believe that there's both a curious and a common aspect of being submitted to the Holy Spirit. You see all throughout Scripture that when the Spirit is doing something, it's doing it in the body. Common aspect. The text seems to indicate that not only was there this supernatural sense of awe, but it was also the driving force behind unifying 3,000 people of different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different ideologies. The Holy Spirit was drawing them together, doing something common in an incredibly diverse community. The Spirit of God brings unity to an extremely diverse group of people. And so you don't get to just do whatever you want to do and blame it on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should be doing something common in the body. You should be affirmed by your brothers and sisters in Jesus. If you're stepping out and, and making room for the Spirit and the Spirit's doing a work in your life, like other brothers and sisters in Christ should affirm that with Scripture. Right? So there's this curious and common aspect both. And, and, and when I was trying to think of how to illustrate this, I think, Grace, your, your vote is a great example of this. You all came to consensus. What does this mean? Does consensus mean that all of you were super stoked about doing this thing? Some of you were probably like, ah, I don't know if I would choose this. I don't know if this is what I think is right. But at the end of the day, you submit it to what the Holy Spirit was doing in the community. This is what it means to be submitted to the Holy Spirit, that we're willing to lay down our preferences and what we think God might be doing to, to fit in with the, the broader group. You don't just get to be weird and blame it on the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. And being submitted to the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you get to say a quick prayer and then do the thing that you wanted to do anyway. I've seen far too many people, both conservatives and charismatics, that use the Holy Spirit as an excuse to do something really ungodly. We just can't do that. Got to hold each other accountable. Imagine a church filled with individuals submitted to the Holy Spirit, open to the curious but accountable to the common. Lastly, imagine a church that's invested in authentic biblical community. It says they sold their property and possessions and shared money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. Imagine a church invested in authentic biblical community. I chose my words carefully here. Both invested and authentic are, are two ways in which I think the, the church in America misses this value from time to time. First, invest it. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to build this level of community in a diverse group of people. You have to be committed to it. You have to be invested in it. It takes time and effort. Not only that, but it has to be authentic. So many churches that I've been a part of I've done this in my own life. We're, we're willing to submit to this kind of shallow country club level community where we don't actually do life with one another or get to know one another. We just wave at each other on the way in and on the way out. We smile and say, Lord, bless your heart and all of the weird Christian phrases that we say that don't make any sense. Like, this is what we do. And so imagine a church that gets both of these elements of community right, that they work hard 
to build it, that they're committed to it, and that they work hard to be vulnerable with one another, transparent with one another, actually do life with one another. This is one of the greatest apologetics of our time. If we're going to reach a city that is in a culture that is overwhelmed by loneliness, overwhelmed by thinking that nobody actually knows them for who they are, imagine if we got this right. Imagine if we did life together and we were vulnerable with one another and we weren't willing to settle for fake, shallow versions of it, but we got to know each other and we forgave one another in the midst of our brokenness. Authentic biblical community is one of the most difficult yet rewarding aspects of the Christian faith. It requires you to be flexible and available. It requires you to show up consistently and transparently. It requires you being honest with your struggles and refusing to be judgmental towards others when they are vulnerable with you about their struggles. I've got, I've got some good news and some bad news as we begin to wrap up our message. Which one would you guys prefer if we go first? I love some crowd participation. You know what? I knew I liked you guys for a reason. I'm a bad news first kind of guy um, because I tend to be a, a cup is half full kind of guy. And so I hear the bad news and I do this thing in my mind where I convince myself that it's not as bad as it actually is. And then I get the good news on top of it and my glass goes from half full to like three quarters full. It ends up working out really well. So, uh, Rachel, we're the same person, aren't we? Okay, good. Um, so we're going to go bad news first. Um, the bad news is that the consistency thing, and we all know, we all have busy schedules, full calendars. The consistency part isn't even the hardest part. The hardest part is the authentic part. It is so hard to trust people enough to actually be open and transparent, to share your struggles and your failures, and to believe that they will extend love and grace rather than judgment and hypocrisy. Many of us in this room, we've heard Canvas leadership use the word churchy. We don't want to become churchy. And, and I think what we mean behind that phrase more than anything else is this. We don't want to become a group of people that settle for shallow, surface-level community. We want to get past small talk. We want to be vulnerable and transparent, and we want to be held accountable. We... We can't just be. We can't just get the first part right and share, confess sins, but never actually do anything about it. We have to also get to the point where we can hold one another accountable for the sin that we're confessing. You guys have heard churches use the phrase, "It's okay to not be okay." It's just not okay to stay there. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a church where it's okay to not be okay. Be vulnerable. Be transparent. Find a community of people that you trust that you can share your struggles with. And they're going to hold you accountable. They're not going to let you get away with you being selfish and sinful. So let me challenge you with a few things. Be intentional to invest in people. Step out of your comfort zone. Spend time in the lobby before and after church getting to know people. Create a hospitable space. If you've got a house that's hospitable and welcoming, invite people into your home. If you're not blessed with that type of home, invite somebody to coffee. Meet them at a park. Create a hospitable space. Invite people to do life with you. I've developed... He's not here, so I'm going to pat him on the back. Um, 
Donovan Russell is really good at this. Donovan and I have developed a great friendship over the past year. And it's not because he's had the time and bandwidth to, like, create space for him and I to build friendship. It's because he just invites me to do life with him. He's like, hey, I'm going to my kid's soccer game. Come with me. You don't have to stop everything that you're doing to form Christian community. Invite people along with you. And they're going to tell you no sometimes. Keep doing it. Keep inviting people into your home, creating space for them. Nothing facilitates authentic biblical community faster than eating meals together in a dirty house with crazy kids running around fighting and screaming and using bad words that they learned from me because I don't yet have a parent filter. Okay? This has been my experience. I have people in this congregation that have done life with me in their homes and nothing facilitates authentic biblical community faster than that. And don't settle for just the people that you feel comfortable with. 3,000 people from every age and every ethnicity and every background. One of the most beautiful things about Christian community, when it's done right, is it is the most diverse community on the planet because it's submitted to Jesus as King and Lord. And so don't just feel comfortable with people who are in your same socioeconomic background, with your same color skin, and with your same political ideologies. Do life with people that think differently than you. That was the bad news. What's the good news? So, although this might be the longest and hardest sermon application you will ever have, I believe it's also the most fulfilling and rewarding thing that will ever happen to you. In the past nine months, Bruce and I have gone through some of the hardest and difficult times of our life. But in those times, we have experienced some of the most life-giving and genuinely authentic community that I could ever imagine. It's the most rewarding thing you'll ever experience, to have people that truly know you and truly love you in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your selfishness, and are unwilling to let you stay there. Not only is it the most rewarding thing that you'll ever do, but like I said earlier, it is the most effective apologetic for this culture. Verse 47. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Each day. New believers were added daily, and the church grew, not because it was perfect. Not because it had the best production or marketing strategy. Not because it had the most talented worship team or charismatic preacher. The church grew daily because it was made up of individuals who were committed to core doctrine. Who were devoted to prayer. Who were submitted to the Holy Spirit and who were invested in building authentic biblical community. I don't know about you, but this is the type of church that I want to be a part of. This is the church I want to see us develop here in this place for the long haul. May we be a people that look back a year from now and have a similar summary statement be true of our church. I'm not naive enough to believe that we won't have some of the other things that are sprinkled throughout the book of Acts. Arguments and fights and quarreling and difficulty, but in the midst of all of that, us, that humanness, that us being real, May we have a summary statement like this be true of our church. And maybe I'm crazy, but I honestly believe 
if each of us as individuals, we get serious about these four core attitudes. We can see our own version of this in the city of Winchester in 2023, and believers will be added to our number daily. Because who doesn't want to be known and loved in an authentic and diverse community of people centered around the author and perfecter of all things? Who doesn't want that? It's the abundant life that Jesus offers us. Imagine a church committed to core doctrine, devoted to prayer, submitted to the Holy Spirit, and invested in building an authentic biblical community. This is my prayer. This is our prayer for our church moving forward. Um, we're going to transition to one final song. I asked Marissa to lead us in a hymn um, because I thought that would bless a lot of us. And we picked this hymn, Be Thou My Vision, because again, let's bookend the beginning of this message and the end of this message. We, we, we entitled My Part Matters. Let's bookend it from the beginning and the end with the fact that it only matters if we're following after Him. May the Lord be our vision in this as we seek to obey Him. We'll sing, I'll lead us in communion, and then we will hopefully start one step into building authentic biblical community in the lobby and in the kids' room and in the parking lot. One step towards the church that God's calling us to be.